shall guide them, but the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. Now we go to verse 17. Verse 17. The merciful man doeth good to his own soul, but he that is cruel troubleth his own flesh. The work the wicked worketh a deceitful work. But to him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. As righteousness tendeth to life. And you understand it's not talking there about justification, first of all. It's talking about the uprightness of the justified man. The uprightness of the justified man tendeth to life. So he that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own death. They that are of a forward heart are abomination to the Lord, but such as are upright in their way are his delight. Same word as above. Though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished, but the seed of the righteous shall be delivered as a jewel of gold in a swine's snout, in a pig's nose. So is a fair woman which is without discretion. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. There is that who scattereth and yet increaseth. There is that who withholdeth more than is meat, but attendeth to poverty. The liberal soul shall be made he that watereth shall be watered also himself. He that withholdeth corn, people shall curse him. The blessing shall be upon the head of him that selleth it. He that diligently seeketh good, procureth favor. But he that seeketh mischief, it shall come unto him. He that trusteth in his riches shall fall, but the righteous shall flourish as a branch. He that troubleth his own house shall inherit the wind, and the fool shall be servant to the wise of heart. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. He that winneth souls is wise. Behold, the righteous shall be recompensed in the earth, much more the wicked. Verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. The righteous man is as a tree, and he bears fruit. And part of that fruit is he winneth souls. A soul winner, not a phrase we use too often, maybe aren't even comfortable with, but it's scriptural. But it's not referring here simply to the minister of the gospel, as it's only a minister by the gospel who is a soul winner. This refers to every believer and your calling. And what the verse is saying is that you and I are to live as Christians in our life and then we will be attractive to those outside who may be unbelieving but who in, in whom whose heart the Spirit is working. And that one realizes that you and I have something 
he or she doesn't have and is attracted and asks the question, what is it that you have that I don't, that gives you, it seems, peace and stability? And what's the answer? Well, Christ, that Christ as the wisdom that's found in God's word. and aren't simply always found taking. As I said, I preached this on the last Sunday, actually it was the second to the last Sunday that I recall before the, the, the new year, just before Christmas. And children couldn't wait, you know, to get their presents on the next Lord's Day, which would be Christmas. And then it's take Take, take. And we have to teach our children that life is not simply about take, 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 and receive, receive, receive. It has much to do with giving, doesn't it? And who is the greatest giver of all? We know his name, and we are to represent and follow him. Now with that, we consider Lord's Day 42, and I'm simply going to read the questions first of all. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? Thou shalt not steal. But not only that, what does God require in this
what have you been involved in and what have you been doing in the service of the Lord. Because the heart of the law is not simply thou shalt not. After we read the law of the law and thou shalt not, we went to Mark, didn't we? And Christ explained to that inquirer what was the great commandment and that which served the great commandment, the great commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. And how are you to show this? By loving your neighbor as yourself. That demonstrates whether or not you really love God as you ought. The two commandments are inseparably related. Don't say, oh, I love the Lord, I love the Lord, but I really have no use for my neighbor. Read 1 John, chapter 4. You say you love God and hate your neighbor? How is it possible to hate the one you can see and call it to say that you love the one you don't see? What's the heart of the law? Love. What is love? Love, beloved, has to do with seeking the welfare of and the well-being of others. You want the supreme example of a sinful man who showed love? Ever hear of the Good Samaritan from Christ's own parable? On his way to Jerusalem, in the land of the Jews, a Samaritan, and a man in a ditch, bypassed by his own fellow countrymen, and the Samaritan stoops down and gives him the water he needs, cleanses some of his wounds, picks him up and carries him back down the mountainside, because going to Jerusalem was an upward matter, and puts him in an inn, pays for the bill and says, I'll be back later to defray any other expenses as well. And he's dealing with the man without asking who he is. Are you a believer? Are you Protestant Reformed? He didn't ask who he was. He was dealing with a man who probably despised him. And what did he do? He returned good for all the evil this man may have thought or done to him. And Christ says, this is what is required of my own. This is what it means to follow me. This is biblical Christianity. This shows whether a man has the Holy Spirit in his heart and it has been transformed or not. The great question of the law, beloved, according to the Eighth Commandment, is this. What have you contributed of late? Notice the word. Contribute. What have you contributed? What have I contributed to the service of my Lord? And contributions, beloved, are more than money. You can be a Pharisee and throw large sums of money into collection plates and remain a Pharisee for all of that. Not that 
giving is simply removed, but it has to be more than that, doesn't it? Contributing not only financially, but contributing in the end, beloved, by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the law, and, beloved, that's the catechism. Now we'll read the answer to the two questions. What hath Christ commanded us? No, 120. What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only those thefts and robberies which are punishable by the magistrate, but he comprehends under the name of theft and robbery all wicked tri- tricks and deceitful and, de- and devices whereby we design to appropriate to ourselves the goods which belong to our neighbor, whether it be by force or under the appearance of right, as by unjust weights, L's, measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, usuries, or any by any other way forbidden by God, as also all covetousness and all abuse and waste of his gifts. Well, what doth God then require in this commandment? That I promote the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may, and deal with him as I desire to be dealt with by others, further also that I faithfully labor so that I may be able to relieve the needy. So we're going to reconsider now this commandment under keeping, simply keeping the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal what is forbidden, what is required, and the great incentive, and maybe I should say incentives, given. Thou shalt not steal, says God's law. Which means, of course, thou shalt not take to thyself something that belongs to another. Something that belongs to another because the Lord God gave it to him and not to you. Taking something that belongs to another as God gave it to him because I desire it and I want it and I think I need it. And maybe even considering his wealth, he won't even miss it anyway. Such is theft. And it's beloved goes back to our origin, doesn't it? to our first parents themselves, who began the history of this world of sin and darkness by theft, by taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that which was forbidden them, what God had reserved for himself. He had given to them the whole of the world, and everything was at their disposal for their use and their enjoyment, with the exception of the fruit of one Tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And one fine day, our first mother visits 
that tree. Maybe it was in the vicinity of the tree of life to remember to remind our first parents that not only were they to say yes to God, but they were to say no to sin and that which was forbidden them. She sees it and she notices that it's pleasant to the eyes, the fruit of it. And the serpent is there, the deceiver, and he says, what's forbidden you simply from taking it? It is good for you. It will make you wise. You can determine for yourself what's right, what's wrong, what serves your best interest, and what is not. Who is God that he should impose his will and his commandments upon you? What right does God have to withhold anything from you and from me? The seriousness of sin, the challenge of God's right to distribute as he pleases, and it's the challenge even of his sovereign right. You understand, beloved, the sin of theft, stealing, is no small matter. It is a serious business. The catechism, as we have it here, reminds us that God forbids not only those thefts and robberies which are punishable by the magistrate and comprehend under the name these wicked tricks and devices where we deem to appropriate to ourselves the goods which belong to our neighbor, whether it be by force or under the appearance of right, whether by force or appearance of right. And we may think, well, this matter of being warned against taking things by force has little application to ourselves. I mean, there's not very many of us, is there, that have walked into a store and put a gun to a man's head and say, your money or your life, empty the till, I want it now. How many of us have been guilty of armed robbery? Sometimes we have children who will take one thing from a brother by some force and they have to be instructed why this is not approved behavior. But as adults, how many actually take things by force from another? Certainly we do not have to be warned in this regard. And yet, beloved, there is a teaching even here when it comes to the matter of shoplifting. A man by force takes from a, a, a man may be a robber and takes something from a man by force with a gun. But shoplifting amounts in the end, does it not, to about the same thing? And our youth better pay heed here because this matter of shoplifting is of epidemic proportions. And there is a great spirit loose in society to want and to want. And certainly I have a certain right and entitlement to take what I want. And others owe me all of these things. And you have a shoplifting epidemic on the loose so that they say about 20% is added by the, the merchants to the price of the goods if they're going to make a profit when all is said and done. And this whole matter of shoplifting, of course, even underscores the lawlessness of the society in which we live. And it's not simply a lawlessness practiced by those who will simply take what's not their own, but it's a lawlessness even by the lawmakers so that you have legislation these days and legislators say that when it comes to shoplifting and taking goods from a store, we're not going to criminalize it if it's under a certain amount, 25 and maybe even 
a higher amount these days. You can bring them in as having arrested them for shoplifting, then they may be, their name may be put on the document, they're going to be simply released. We're not going to criminalize this taking of these smaller amounts from another man's store. A lawlessness that's being promoted by lawmakers. There's a hypocrisy loose as well, of course. All you have to do, all you have to do is park near the residence of one of these lawmakers who's in favor of this lawlessness and wait till he opens his garage door and then simply walk in and walk off with some of his tools and assure him it's under $25 this tool I'm taking and I, I need it, I'm entitled, am I not? And then watch his response and his behavior and his anger and his threats and his calling of the law down upon you. It's all right if you take from another man what is not yours. But don't you dare take from me what is not yours and what is mine. That's a whole other matter. A hypocrisy and a lawlessness. But even, let's understand, even though society will not now criminalize this simply taking of the goods of another, doesn't mean it's not contrary to God's law. Whether it be $25, $125, or $1.25. It's contrary to the Eighth Commandment, and the penalty for theft, beloved, is a serious matter. It makes one worthy of death, just as surely as our first mother taking that forbidden fruit from the tree made her and her posterity worthy of death and condemnation. It's a challenge, as I have said, of the right of God to give to whom he disposes according to his will, and we challenge his own sovereign right and rule. But there's even more to the sin of theft than simply challenging the right of God to distribute as he pleases. Also has to do with the display of the corruption of the heart. Because when our first mother decided to take for herself that forbidden fruit, she was weighing something on a scale, on a balance. She knew what she was doing was forbidden by God. But she had an appetite and a desire that had been aroused to satisfy that appetite and that desire at the expense of fellowship with God. That's what she was weighing in the scale as the temptation was before her to take of that forbidden fruit. I shall take the forbidden fruit it will cost me the fellowship and approval of God, which is of greater value, do I wonder? Right there, the sin, beloved. You, wouldn't, you even have to think about what's of greater value to satisfy my desire in a temporary way to scratch that itch and the fellowship of God and to decide I'll go for the temporary satisfaction of this or that desire and kiss the fellowship of God goodbye? And we don't think that's a serious matter and makes us worthy of condemnation? We have just showed below where the value is in our hearts. It's the corruption of the heart and the assessment of things, isn't it? This is, I say again, no small matter. Our youth must pay heed and all of us may must pay heed. How 
close this is to human nature, of course, is made plain. Because, of course, we have what is known as covetous hearts. And we have hearts that want to serve self and take what's good for me at the expense even of others. How will it profit me in some self-centered, self-serving way? So the sin of theft, beloved. It's interesting that society knows how prone human nature is to theft, and so society itself has decided that there are points of theft and robbery, the transgression of what we call the Eighth Commandment, that must be penalized. Maybe not individuals so much when they take what does not belong to them, but certainly corporations and businesses must be held to the law and the threats of penalties and even heavy penalties if somehow they take advantage of the public and cheat the public. And so you have government agencies, of course, that are commissioned to make sure that there are proper weights and standards and values and measurements and so on. And if the companies that are selling these things at a certain supposed weight or quantity don't live up to the on the packages and on the pumps they are to be penalized and, and so heavily. The catechism, of course, is getting at that when it speaks of the appearance of right by unjust weights, L's, measurements, and fraudulent merchandise, and so on. Those are matters of, of measurement in the older days, the measurements of length and measurements of, of weight in a day and age before they had proper scales with numbers on them, they had balances, didn't they? And if you went to a marketplace and you wanted to buy a pound of flour or so, the merchant that you were buying it from would have a certain weight that said maybe one pound on it, and he'd put it on the, the one side of the balance, and then into the other little bucket on the other side, he'd, pound, he'd pour the flour until it was even, and you had your pound of flour. And when it came to the, the L, understand it's about a measurement of about 22 inches or so, and then you want some cloth that you wanted to buy. I want three L's of cloth that you would measure by a certain stick he had, three L's and he cut it off, and you would have your three L's of about a, what, a couple yards of, of cloth. But the question is, were those tampered with? Was that a proper pound, and was that a proper L, or was only what he said it was? Well, government agencies would come along, and they'd have the government standard, and they would put their one pound on one side of the scale and take the merchant's pound of weight and put it on the end. If theirs was heavier, you're cheating the customer, aren't you? Or your stick of measurement is not 22 inches, it's only about 19 inches. You're closed down, sir. You're out of business. And the restrictions were put on. It still happens today, of course. How can you be sure that what you're getting from the gas pump is a gallon of gas when you pay your three, four dollars per gallon? Well, you have a government agency that shows up unannounced now and again, and they have their containers, and they look to make sure there's 128 ounces of, of fluid in that container of theirs as they read one gallon on the gas pump. And if it's not one gallon on the gas pump, but only 100, 118 ounces, the place is shut down. You're cheating 
the customer. They know it is necessary or business would not be carried on as usual in our society with its covetousness and dishonesty. You could trust basically no one. So by the threat of law and the penalty applied, there is a certain honesty, you would say. But beloved, when it comes to a Christian life, we must not be governed by honesty simply because there is the threat and the penalty of law. And if we don't do business in an honest way and we are prone to cheat and we're found out, well, then we may be shut down. We're going to suffer the penalty. Not a matter of the threat of the penalty, beloved, unless it's this threat. If you don't live in an honest way, you will forfeit the fellowship with God. That we better listen to. But we're Christians. This is required of us by God. This is discipleship. And this is what makes a good testimony. So in the interest of the name that we carry, whose we are, we must live in what we call an honest way and not a dishonest way. The proneness of the human heart to take advantage of the unsuspecting was brought home to me in a documentary that I watched, I must admit, some 30 years ago that made an impression on me. It had to do with the diamond industry in New York City, which is a Jewish section, but it's a Jewish section that has its roots back in Amsterdam of the Netherlands and the diamonds coming from South Africa and a TV, New York TV television decided to do a documentary on the diamond industry of the merchants in New York City. And they sent a crew out with cameras and they interviewed the diamond merchants. And from the, the beginning of the purchase of the diamonds from the mines till it could be set in, the, in, a, in, a, in a ring that you could give to your, your true love on a on a Christmas day or, or something. But they interviewed and they talked about the honesty amongst the merchants as they traded di- and distributed diamonds amongst themselves. They almost knew those diamonds like their own, own children. And if they did some inspection of another man's diamonds, and then later it was, it was shown that the diamond had been replaced by an inferior diamond, and that was found out you were simply out of of the market and you were blacklisted. And so there was a tremendous honesty, they said, amongst the diamond merchants amongst themselves as they traded this diamond and that diamond amongst themselves. But of course, under the penalty of the threat of what it would cost them. But how honest was this whole business? So they sent a crew in and purchased a diamond. Supposedly, they said, for this one man's true love. It was a sizable rock. As I recall, it was purchased at the cost of $8,000. There was a number of diamonds all about the same size. Why this one at 8000 rather than at 5000 that one? Oh, the merchant said, because it has a purity to it, don't you see? A purity that's in the EFG bracket rather than the NOP bracket. They did it by the alphabet. And you see, when you're in the EFG bracket, that has a certain purity. No one gets an AB, but EFG is good. And he had a white shirt of a kind, and he said, see how pure this diamond is? 
how white it is, that's the cost. It's purity with the size. So they bought it. Three months later, they came back with the same diamond with a different crew. And now they wanted to sell the diamond. How much will you give for us, diamond? Mother died. Here it is. So, they asked, and they put it up for sale. And the diamond merchant responds, and he looks at that diamond, and he says that when I look at the diamond, it doesn't seem to be so pure as it ought to be. As I look at this diamond, it's in the NOP section. He has this white sheet on the wall with a light shining on it, and he puts it against that white sheet, and sure enough, it appears rather yellowish. All I can give to you, he says, is about $2,000. It's an inferior diamond. How can that be, they ask. We were told by a merchant that it was of good quality and, and in the EFG category. Well, he says, I don't know who told you that, but someone has taken advantage of you. I suggest you go talk with that man once again. And they played for him, of course, the film they had taken three months prior. He said, they recognize this man? I believe it's you, sir. Out of here, out of here, out of here. And the man simply proved, of course, what Scripture declares in the Proverbs, that when a man is buying something, he says, not, not, not. It's not worth very much. But when he wants to sell that thing, suddenly it has great value. Now it has increased in value because I'm selling it to you. And you take advantage of the unsuspecting and the naive under the appearance of right. The covetousness of the human heart below. You think this only belongs to the Jewish factor of, factory of society? Englishmen don't have hearts this way, do they? Maybe the Chinese do, but certainly not the Dutch and the German, right? The love this is human nature. Our human nature is, how does it profit me at the expense of my neighbor? Unless something takes hold of one and that something is someone by his grace, and it's the power, beloved, of the Holy Spirit that must work in our hearts under the preaching of the gospel to give a different evaluation of things. And what, in the end, is really of greatest value, and what is of greatest value to the child of God must not be what is in that merchandise, what we call riches and wealth, what must be of greatest value to us is, does it have the approval of our Lord God as he sees our hearts and assesses where our evaluation of things really is, not in things, but in service and reflecting the heart and mind of the one whom we call Lord and Savior. Again, I say, beloved, the sin of theft is a serious business. I repeat, because the sin of theft and dishonesty, in the end, of course, displays a, a, a challenge of God's right of sovereignty to distribute as he pleases. And we will, as men, redistribute over against the sovereignty of God and his right and challenge that. It reveals and exposes the corruption of the heart that we will 
even evaluate sometimes goods and merchandise and who knows what else, forbidden fruit, at the expense of the fellowship and approval of God, weighing the fellowship and approval of God in the balance and finding that wanting over against the desire of our covetous heart, God forbid. But also, of course, in the end, when you're involved in theft, it's not just the breaking of the Eighth Commandment. Invariably, you have to also break the Ninth Commandment, and there's dishonesty as with that merchant, that diamond merchant. And then the covetousness, as well, it becomes a whole sin syndrome. So, beloved, the seriousness of the sin and why it is forbidden. But there's another matter in this catechism that is forbidden, that has not simply to do with goods and material things, but as it says, also what's forbidden has to do not only with covetousness, but all abuse and waste of his gifts. In other words, why has God given us various gifts? And you could talk about gifts as skills and abilities. Well, he has given us gifts and abilities to be used in his service, hasn't he? Not simply in the service of self, and how I can advance myself and the praise of men as we sung, to have status with men, but gifts and abilities that we can be a service of our Lord and his kingdom and the advancement of his name and of others who are our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, just as Christ himself. Why did Christ come into the world? Did he come into the world blood to serve himself? He sought his glory and the glory of God. But part of the glory of God was the salvation of the people given to him. And what did he do, beloved? He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister unto, to be of service. Did he not? And that is how we are to imitate and follow him. And one of the main gifts that he has given us is the gift of time. Don't forget, beloved, the gift of time. Beginning, beginning of a new year, you can reflect back on an old year. What did you do with the time that went by? How did you spend it? Notice the word, spend it. It's as a currency that's been given to us. Are we going to deal with that time given to us as disciples or as thieves who will spend it only in our own service and to our own advance, advancement and advantage? The time that's given to us, who will it profit? Just myself? And that in a material way? And that's Christianity. You know as well as I do that's not Christianity. If it's going to profit us, it better be in a spiritual way. A spiritual way that can be used in the benefit of others. Beloved. The gift of time. How have I spent it? To the profit of who? The profit of whom? Was it wasted? and abused. I have time given to me. And all the time I've given to me that I have free time, what am I going to do? I think I simply will go a fishing. There's nothing wrong with fishing, beloved. There was a disciple who said once, I go a fishing. And he went a fishing, didn't he? 
And then a few days later, the Lord appeared on a shore and called that man with his other fishermen brothers to come to the shore because I have other things in mind for you. For you, brother, simply to spend the rest of your life fishing is going to be wrong. You must be in my service. Now, we're not all called to be apostles, but neither, beloved, is the primary focus of our life to go a-fishing, is it? Or a-hunting, if you will. Nothing wrong with them in themselves to go fishing or hunting, but that must not become the preoccupation of our, of our life. And once I'm done using my time to earn a living, now all the free time I have is simply a hunting and a fishing in the service of my self. Now, I don't have a predisposition to go hunting and a fishing. I had brothers who did. That's not my weakness. I like to read. And one can read and read and read. And use one time simply to, it's a good thing to read. But just to read? And to read what? To whose profit? What kind of stuff are we, are we reading? Is it of any edifying value? You can relax with this novel or that, but that's how we use the whole of our time. And what's neglected? And who's forgotten? When there are needs that must be ministered to. That's, you see, what the catechism has in mind here. Not simply the gifts that are given to us with respect to ability, but even with time itself. Maybe while I'm at it, I ought to mention sports, because we live in a society that is sports mad. And it's not only a matter of playing sports, and everything can be disrupted in life to cater to the sports, and it takes wisdom how to manage these things. But even if you're not playing sports, you can sit in an easy chair and watch sports. And after the game is played, watch others talk about the sports, on and on and on. We haven't done anybody wrong, have we? That's not the question. Have we contributed, beloved? Have we contributed by the gift of time God has given us to the kingdom, to our own spiritual needs? Have we used that time to grow spiritually, or is it just that we're do, doing nothing? Just doing nothing. I didn't transgress by hurting anyone. Did you help anyone? Did I advance anybody? Did I show love? Did I increase them in some spiritual, physical way? That's the commandment below. And now we get into the matter of the requirement. First, with respect to the use of our time, as we have opportunity for the advantage of others. The Catechism, when it says to us, what doth God require in this commandment, answers by saying that I promise that I promote the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may, and deal with him as I desire to be dealt with by others. My human nature doesn't like that wording. My old man. And I'm not talking about my father, I'm talking about myself. My human nature would like to reword that phrase, this instruction. My human nature would like to edit it this way. That you promote my advantage in every way that you can or may and deal with me as you desire me to deal with you. That's how I would like to read that 
phrase that you promote my advantage as you can and deal with me as you desire me to deal with you. I like that reading. That serves me well, don't you think? But that's not what the Catechism says. And that's not what the Catechism says because that's not what Christ Jesus says. When it comes to Christ Jesus and the law, Christ Jesus and his law requires this matter of love, and he speaks of love in a giving way. Christ Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, As ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. And then he adds this, For if you love them which love you, what thank have you? For sinners also love those that love them. And if you do good to them which do good to you only, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And then he goes on to say this of all things. But as for you, my disciples, you are to love your enemies and to do good and to lend to them, hoping for nothing again. And your reward will be great in heaven and you shall be the children of the highest. So I'm required to do good to you as I would have you do to me. That's a horse of a different color. In fact, that's not only a horse of a different color, that's a different species, beloved. Because by nature, I'm not interested in myself having to do good to you. I'm interested in you doing good to me, don't you see? And treating me as you desire to be treated. And to seek my advantage. I think that's a wonderful word. Except it's not the word of God, is it? It doesn't, it doesn't address me and say, well, how have others been treating you? And let that determine your look on life, how others have been treating you. Well, not very well, Lord. They haven't been treating me very well at all. And when it comes to other treatments of me, you know, I have 20-20 vision and a long memory. But when it comes to my treating others, suddenly I lose my clarity. And I don't see that very well at all. In fact, I'm kind of blind to that. And then the word of, Lord, of the Lord comes along, as it must come along, and say, no, let's rearrange your thinking again. It's not simply a matter in this life how others have treated you and whether they've taken advantage of you. And Lord, you know they did, and so I may respond likewise. Oh, no. question is this. How have you been treating others of late? But they mistreated me, Lord. That's not the question. Have you been treating them as you desire to be treated yourself? Have you returned good for evil? That's a pretty sharp question, isn't it? That's the test of Christianity, beloved. That's where the, they say the rubber meets the road. But really, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. You wonder why we need prayer? You wonder why we must seek grace? You wonder why it's beyond us if we don't pray and confess our own sins in this regard and then pray for the grace that we may do 
good to others as we would have them do to us and seek the advantage of others, even at the expense of self, Lord, yes. That's what I'm requiring. That's the word of God, beloved. And that's the evidence of the biblical Christian faith. Much is required of us. The impossible apart from grace and grace apart from prayer. And yet, beloved, there are those who by grace and prayer have spent their lives well in the service of others. Perfectly? No. But they have. I'll, I'll name a few names. Ever hear of the Apostle Paul? How he gave himself and spent himself even doing good to those who treated him evilly, his own Jewish brethren, they threw rocks at him and stones, and he brought the gospel to them and prayed for their salvation. That's the keeping of this commandment, beloved, as he used his time and his skills and ability. And I can name a John Calvin as well. But I don't want to leave the impression that it takes a minister and some man of great high caliber, just the exceptional Christian of name is called to do this and has done this. No. I'll give you another example. Ever hear of the mothers of Israel? I believe a few are sitting here this morning, are you not? And as a mother of Israel, much is demanded of you by your children. And the demand goes on and on and on, and you must give of yourself. And you do that, why? In love. It can be draining. Do you do that perfectly? At the end of the day, of course, you don't do that perfectly. You pray for the grace to forgive the imperfections of the labor of the day. Mothers of Israel, as you labor prayerfully and give of yourself and spend yourself in the interest of your children for the sake of the kingdom, there is a word, a word that we read in Proverbs, of a reward that comes by grace, even in the joy of this life, but especially in the life to come. Well done, a good and faithful servant, as you have done this prayerfully by grace and the imperfections washed away and the Lord using weak means to accomplish great and saving ends. Beloved, to this we have great incentive. I will be brief here. I could say when it comes to this commandment, why are you to Strive to do what is required of you. Because the Lord God commands you to do so, that's why. It is the law. He's God, you're man. Are we going to quarrel with the Lord? If the Lord says do it, do it. Amen, let's go home. That's not God's word, is it, simply. I am the Lord. I have the authority. You are men and women. And this is what I require of you, now go out and do it. There is authority, beloved. But it's interesting that when the Lord God comes with his commandments, he not only says, I am the Lord God and you are man, but he says, I am the Lord God who brought thee from the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage. I am the God who set you free, and I set you free at great cost to myself, at the blood of mine own son, giving him as a lamb, as the blood upon the doorpost, your doorpost to set you free. Serve me in gratitude for what I have done for you. And know this, 
that as you serve me, as we read Proverbs, I will even reward my own work of grace in you as you serve me and strive to do that from the heart. Incentive given, beloved, from the Lord God and his goodness and his mercy. And then there is this. Christ Jesus himself, his example and his deed in our behalf. Christ Jesus, the Lord. We say, Lord, but I must do good to someone who has done evil to me. I must look out for the well-being of one who has taken advantage of me. Beloved, Christ Jesus, whom did he serve? He served a people, beloved, who took advantage of him, who were thieves and robbers, and saved a band of thieves and robbers. Go to the cross. He's the Lord of all. The whole of creation is his as the Son of God. And mankind put him on the cross and stripped him naked and left nothing to him, not even his own clothing. We will take it to ourselves. We will leave you with nothing, thou Son of God. And he gave himself to death. And he arose again. Simply for his own advantage. You know why he arose, beloved? And why he gave himself? So that we who were guilty of stripping him naked might become the heirs of all once again. To restore to us what our first mother had forfeited. And we together with her that's the Lord who calls us to this behavior, to this life. Do you hear him? He is your Lord, but he's also the one who has loved you and me with a bottomless love. Let us serve him, beloved, and pray for the grace to do to others as we would have them do to us and be as honest in our business as the Lord has treated us. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks, apply it to our hearts, teach us wisdom. Father, may we follow after in gratitude and stand amazed at thy love and give thee service as is required. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.